is Annika in Columbia and Maria in Happy Valley. And welcome to the second season of the City of Subdued podcast, Bad Town. So before we dive into our episode this week, we just wanted to go over some local hot topics, which is Maria's cup of tea. So Maria, what hot topics do you have for us this week? Lots of stuff going on in town right now. We got the opportunity to walk around Friday night and saw all the awesome winter prep businesses are doing so that we can stay safe and warm outside. Yes, fire tables, heat lamps, things like that. It, it makes it so you can stay cozy and safe at a low risk for spreading COVID. We also think that we should normalize bringing your own blankets to bars. This is what the Snuggie was made for, people. Oh, yeah. That sounds like a really great idea and a really uh, great future segment. Who knows? <laughs> I can definitely smell a project. Yes. So uh, we also want to send our love and support out for Bayou on Bay, which had a bit of flooding when an apartment above caught on fire. Yeah, absolutely. And Anna and I will be back to get a couple of drinks there as soon as they're reopened for service. Yes. And of course, I'm excited this week to hear about our story. So what do we have this week? Oh, it's a really good one. This is a story about Bellingham's bad boy, Bud Cox. That is coming right up on this week's episode of Bad Town. Maria, and welcome to Bad Town, where we discuss the darkest and baddest parts of Bellingham and Whatcom County history. We are joined today by Marissa. Hi. And Colby. Howdy-do. From the Good Time Girls. What is today's story? So today's story is about Bad Bud Cox, the original Bad Town bad boy. And our, our story today begins with another notorious crime committed in Fairhaven. It's an Old West-style shootout and robbery at a saloon. And we'll take a deeper look into the life of um, one of the men involved, Bad Bud Cox. It's a story about a man who spent his life addicted and incarcerated in the late 1800s and early 1900s and of a torture that he experiences at the hands of the state. So, you know, lighthearted. Yeah, it seems like it could be our HBO premium cable television episode. It has all the makings. Absolutely. Like there's definitely a grim soundtrack and it's like it looks kind of sepia tone all the time and everyone is a little dirty and greasy and, and has like flat caps on. <laughs> Before we get rolling on our story, let's set the mood. Tell me about the time and place Bad Bud Cox was living in. Right. Well, again, we are back in Fairhaven, which was originally its own little town. Fairhaven is Bellingham's south side neighborhood. And it really um, had its heyday when it was its own little town in the 1890s boom years when things got really wild westy. I came across the story about Bad Bud Cox because we were researching various things about Fairhaven and in particular the Fairhaven plaques or the historical markers that are placed around in Fairhaven. Um, and there's one, well, it's supposed to be there down at the foot of Harris Avenue about Butch's saloon and this incident, but it's missing. So 
This is the description of the crime from the original brochure that accompanied the marker for this little tidbit. It said, late one night in 1902, two graduates from the state prison decide to rob a few of the boys at Butch's Place Saloon. The clientele and bullets flew like promises at election time. Two men were wounded, one man killed, and two sent up the river for a stretch of 12 to 20 years. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm just having a moment about that whole thing. Go ahead and comment. It's a good one. <laughs> no, I was just I was just having a moment because I think like the promises that bullets flew like promises at election time. It feels a little close to home at the moment. But go right. Ahead. Yeah, it's a scary. This is a scary election in particular. This is very triggering. <laughs> Bad Bud Cox is quoted as saying, I'm glad the witnesses are all young so that they will live until I get out of the pen and can kill them. Ooh, boy. If I didn't have a crush on him before, I do now. Well, you've seen his mug shots, so that's why you have a crush on him, because he's cute. Yeah, and we can share the mug shots on uh, Instagram because they are fascinating. You can wa- really watch his decline. But yeah, he definitely had a swarthy, handsome, swaggery. He looks his his youngest mug shot looks like a young, handsome Bellinghamster today. Like someone yes. I definitely would have dated. He goes from like Bellingham bad boy to like old sad man. Yeah, <laughs> in his mug shot. And I presume that's the journey you'll be taking us on today. Unfortunately, yes. But I think that telling of what, you know, a life of incarceration will do to you. So I can get us to the details. So there's a Seattle Daily Times headline about the incident that read, Battle with robbers. Three men in Fairhaven are wounded. Exciting midnight encounter follows the holdup of a saloon. Um, The robbery took place on May 25th, 1902 in Fairhaven, um, which we already know is at Butch's Place. Butcher's Saloon, it's sometimes referred to. We're not really clear exactly where Butch's place was in Fairhaven, but we know it was on the lower Harris Avenue near the waterfront. But what happened in a nutshell was recently paroled Bad Bud Cox and his accomplice staged a holdup of the saloon. And in the process, a gunfight ensued. Three men were shot and one ended up dying. And the holdup was accomplished just before midnight. And one man was described as tall and one short. The description of the men matched that of those who recently held up three saloons in Tacoma. So they're serial robbers. Potentially, yeah. The tall man was described as 5 feet and 10 inches, weighing about 185 pounds, with a dark complexion, wearing light trousers and a dark coat and vest. He had a dark shirt and a red polka dot tie, which is charming. And that's Bad Bud Cox. I like that he wore a tie to this robbery, by the way. It's very formal. I love that so hard. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Do you think it was white or some other color with red polka dots? Or do you think it was red? I envision it as red with white polka dots. That's what I thought, too. Like a clown's tie. A statement piece. I mean, and and it's kind of interesting. Like, that's what you choose to wear to hold up a place. Because also the articles mentioned they are wearing bandanas over their faces. Although one of them fell off during the robbery. But, like, you're kind of trying to be in disguise. (laughs) It just sounds kind of bungled. And yeah, you're trying to be incognito here, bad bud. Let's not wear your most distinctive and bespoke tie that you own, please. I feel like he was like just kind of like a cocky, you know, like whatever. I'm going to wear my polka dot tie. Colby, who was the short guy? Because I know that the tall guy was bad bud. Right. So the short guy was his accomplice, whose name was John Harrigan. And he's not nearly as interesting. So we're not going to talk very much about him. Great. But I can tell you about the details of the crime a little bit. Yes, please do. Okay. Uh, They entered the saloon on Harris through the rear door. 
And when they got in there, the bartenders behind the bar and a guy named Thomas Barger and another man are by the stove. And one of the guys is putting wood in the stove and he sees the robbers come in and he's like, oh, no. And he tries to run out because they're wearing bandanas over their faces and holding guns. He's like, ah. He's like, Old West trope is entering the room and I know they're bad guys. Yeah. So the tall robber, which is Bad Bud Cox, shoots at him and he was hit in the shoulder, but he got away and ran into a, a saloon nearby. Because we were lousy with saloons in Fairhaven at that point. Literally, especially down there on the waterfront. Ugh. If I had a time machine. So they grab the cash register, like the whole register, which I'm picturing, you know, those old timey registers with like giant levers and things. That weigh a ton. Probably weighed a bajillion pounds and we're all metal. So they grab that and they run out the door. And as they're leaving, uh, they run into policeman Peterson, who just randomly was on his beat. And here he sees these guys running out of a saloon carrying a cash register with like bandanas on their faces. So they start shooting at each other, Natch. And <laughs> it's their most um, Wild eight, West story. Yeah. <laughs> so eight shots are fired, and Peterson is hit by new. Numerous shots, the policeman, and he was believed to be mortally wounded at the moment. So the robbers run off, Bad Bud and his friend, with the cash register, and they make it about a block and a half before they're like, um, this darn thing's heavy. And they put it down and they open it up to get the contents out, which was a whole $3. <laughs> I just looked that up. That is about $86 in 2020 money. They shot a cop for $86. Yeah, that'll get them some, some dope probably but still uh <laughs> not a huge heist i mean that'll also get them like 40 nights stay in a hotel in fairhaven so that's good that's true and and some hookers <laughs> sorry i mean nobody thinks that they were that they were schoolboys. colby <laughs> i know Okay, so they come back up Harris Street again for some reason, and the night watchman at the uh, fisheries there spies them and is like, the robbers! Um, And they run back over Dead Man's Point, which was this big hill at the foot of Harris Avenue that doesn't exist anymore. So the night watchman's like, police, police, there goes the robbers! And they show up and they all try to, you know, cordon off the robbers. But they're unsuccessful. But meanwhile, in the dark, one of the policemen and the night watchman guy at the cannery mistake each other for robbers and shoot at each other with the night watchman being wounded and he ended up dying from his injuries. Which is why they started doing protocols like freeze, hold up your hands, <laughs> don't shoot, things like announcing what's happening before I mean, you if just you're start white. shooting randomly at each other. Right. So they formed a posse manhunt starts and they couldn't find him that night and so they're like eh, looks like they went south they're like, it looks like maybe they took a boat. The next morning, though, it didn't take long for them to catch up to them. So the next day, the Seattle Star reported um, two men were captured last night by Officer Parberry, answering the, to the description of the robbers who held up Butch's saloon and shot policeman Peterson. One of the suspects is the notorious Bud Cox, who had just served a 10-year term in the penitentiary for highway robbery. So... Cox had previously served two terms in Walla Walla for two different robberies in Snohomish County. He had just gotten out in February of 1902, just a few months before this robbery happened in Fairhaven. So at this point, he's already been in jail twice. Yeah, for two different robberies. So he's... <laughs> 
That's why he's bad bud and not just regular bud. He's not like normal old bud Cox. Mr. Bud Cox. He's bad bud Cox. Yeah. So Cox and Harrigan were arraigned um, and trial dates were set. Meanwhile, waiting on trial in Whatcom County Jail, Bud and John um, were being held in the jail with a bank magnet, H. St. John, who was awaiting sentencing for wrecking the Scandinavian American bank. Colby, what do you think wrecking the bank? Well, he just basically, he embezzled lots of money and managed it very poorly and caused it to um, fail. Oh, he like swindled, he like swindled a bunch of people out of their money and, and wrecked the banking aspect of the bank. I liked the idea of him having just like taken a sledgehammer to it, but that's good too. No, he was like the head of the bank. So he was like a, you know, high society type who's in jail with these two low life convicts for that are like junky burglars. That's amazing. I mean, I understood that he was a bank magnet, but I just thought that he like got real mad and destroyed the bank. So anyway, these three, this motley crew and some other guy named Charles West, who was just some beehole in there for who was in there for beating his wife, um, they devised a plot to escape together. The wife beater, Charles West, chickens out and and tells the whole thing to Sheriff Brisbane. Oh, gross. What a sniveling piece of crap. In our HBO special, he'd definitely be like the Joffrey, the character everybody loves to hate or hates to hate either way boo yeah totally he sucks so part of the plot to escape involved bud cox grabbing the sheriff this is legit and if he refused to open the doors killing him so <laughs> like that that was part of the plan that was the logic of the and the hot-headedness that makes me believe that he really meant it when he's threatened to kill the witnesses in the trial right well he also shot at the guy like he shot at two people already Ironically, the only one who died was shot by a policeman. Well, this is what I want to understand in Bud Cox's logic at this point, which it makes me believe that he is definitely like withdrawing from heroin is he's like, OK, plan. Here's the plan. We're going to grab the sheriff somehow when he gets close to the bars or whatever. And then we're going to force him to open the lock and let us out. And then if he doesn't, we're going to kill him, which is like now you're just in the jail with a dead sheriff. So West, the Charles West, the wife beater, also gave them tons of dirt on Bud Cox in general, things he had said about the saloon holdup, including that he'd buried the gun and some stolen silverware near the Miller's Shingle Mill in Fairhaven. And to be fair, I'm not fair, but to be honest, at the time, I'm sure the guy that beat up his wife, they're like, well, he didn't really commit a crime. He's like a normal guy. Like, who hasn't beaten up their wife? So this guy's not really a criminal. These other guys are like legit criminals. And then there's this, this big swindler from banks. Like, obviously, the bank guy is bad. But the, just like the mores of the time, he ha probably had more credibility than we would think he would today. So Bud Cox says that if Charles West got released, he'd tell him where it was, where this um, silverware and gun was that he stashed so that West could sell it and buy him and Harrigan um, some dope instructing him how to smuggle it into the jail in walnut shells, which I just imagine, I brought you a bag of nuts. <laughs> I've got a bag of nuts for the prisoners. Yeah, and I guess like black tar heroin or whatever it would have been would be sticky. So I guess you just like stick the walnuts together. It's it's hard to know what they mean by dope, right? Right. I mean, it's definitely an opiate, I'm certain. Right. But like, is it opium? Like... Like you would yeah. smoke or is it in, you know, which form is it in is unclear. Yeah. Well, so West also said that Cox confessed 
and that the reason he and Harrigan did not leave the vicinity after committing the crime was because they were full of dope, on which they were both very fond. (laughs) (laughs) So Bad Bud Cox was arrested and sat around in jail for a while. Then what happened to him? Well, with this plenty of evidence by the squealer guy and, um, you know, just eyewitnesses at the scene of the crime, they were both uh, found guilty. And uh, this is when the media really started referring to him as like bad Bud Cox, like before he was the notorious Bud Cox. So basically what gave him this like elevated status in the press was that he was starting to like make threats against people who had testified against him. So basically like as he is being like taken out of the courtroom, he starts yelling in the hallway at West, the guy who told on him that he's going to spend the remainder of his days looking for him and he's going to kill him. And uh, the paper commented, as Cox is sure to get the limit for his time, 20 years, it will be some time before he can make good on his promise. And I don't think he ever killed anyone that I could find. But you mean after that, after the people he randomly shot, he never made um, good on those threats? No, he didn't hunt down that guy at all. Or any any kids. No. (laughs) Fortunately. He also later confessed to his lawyer. He issued a confession. He kind of broke down and was like, I tried to live an honest life. But his record hounded him from place to place. And in sheer desperation, he said he took up his old vocation. It's like something we've been hearing about lately, too, with it, when it comes to prison reform and, and like how your prison record follows you forever. It's very difficult to start up, like to go into town and be like, well, where, where have you been for the last five years? What are your references? What is your job experience? And Why you're is like, there well, this giant gap in your resume? <laughs> I was that feels like a very modern day problem that still persists. But it's also interesting, they mention in this same article where he confessed to his lawyer that he also told his attorney a sensational story about life in prison and and the state in which the penitentiary is conducted, which, Marissa, do you want to? Yeah. So this is interesting because in 1906, a few years later, um, a reporter named John H. Dreher wrote an article in the Seattle Daily Times on inhumane treatment of prisoners at Walla Walla State Penitentiary. And he named Bud Cox as one informant. So I'm going to give you the headline and the quote. So the headline is, Subject convicts to barbarous punishment. Acts of medieval inquisition outdone under the direction of Superintendent Keys at Walla Walla Prison. Hosing on the cross, exquisite torture. Case of Cox and others show to what lengths vindictiveness can be carried. Dungeon is severe. When a man's offense to society is of such a character that it compels his incarceration in the state's prison of Washington at Walla Walla, society demands that this incarceration be made secure that the time be faithfully served, that the provisions be made for his partial self-sustenance be compelled of him, and that he be punished when he offends the institutional laws. The laws do not demand and society does not pursue with vindictive spirit the punishment of the felon. So it's referring to, you know, just going back to the headline, the hosing on the cross. So hosing on the cross is this brutal and barbarous um, treatment. It would put the blush of shame on the cheek of the chief inquisitor of a medieval prison, according to this reporter. The cross on which the hosing occurred was invented by an inmate. So this torture was invented by an inmate called Deffy, which is flattering. Herming nickname. He was a convict who was known as a stool pigeon and hated by other inmates. And he was described as a pet of the superintendent. 
And he broke the hip of another guy named Frenchie. I can only imagine that he was French. And I, I presume he broke the hip of this guy while he was carrying out this torture of him. So the hosing on the cross, according to the article, it says there is set up in the bathroom a broad Latin cross to which the convict is strapped by the arms and legs. So it's a cross, but it has supports. It's got like a base. So it stands up, right? And the supports are angled like behind the cross kind of but out to the sides like brackets picture and so that's what the legs are spread out upon so the main part of the cross would come down right between the legs so they spray these inmates with a hose with 40 to 75 pounds of pressure so more like a fire hose than not a fire hose not quite like our modern day ones but quite intense and they direct it against all the vital parts of the body So the prison physician would be on hand while they did this to take pulse and say, you know, it's time to stop. And a man named John Gates was rendered almost totally deaf through a hosing that he got about the head. Bodies of the hose men were often swollen and frightfully discolored for weeks. Frightfully discolored comes from the article. The article mentions Bud Cox specifically. He had done 10 years and already served so half of his 20-year sentence from Whatcom County. And he incurred the dislike of the superintendent. The warden called him an agitator, always fomenting trouble among the convict body. While the convicts themselves said that Cox is quiet and inoffensive, the spirit of independence long since hold or hosed out of him. So they basically broke his spirit, it sounds like. Cox, who'd been sick in bed for a couple weeks, this is what is, is quoted in the newspaper, his feet terribly swollen from standing on a cement floor at the loom, thrown into the dungeon and for eight days did not have a mouthful of food. The first four days he was denied it. And in the days that followed, he was unable to eat the bread that was passed to him. He was weak and unable to stand when they removed him and protested being told to take a bath. So they drug him down two flights of stairs, bumping him over the landings and steps with thuds that sickened the men who heard it. So I'm imagining it's his head that's hitting the step. Ugh, jeez. Yeah. He was then strapped to the cross and hosed unmercifully, then dragged back to the dungeon for another 24 hours. So this is extremely barbaric treatment that's happening and you know the his infractions that he had in some cases um the the initial infraction that seems to have made the um, superintendent hate him the warden hate him so much was he tried to escape in 1905 he had stolen a drill and a key and um but going going forward it was literally stuff like stealing bread wasting bread which might have meant that he didn't eat it couple of times he got in trouble for making curios in the jute mill. So they, there was a jute mill and it seems like he was basically like making things that he wasn't supposed to be making. And curios would, could have been anything like little figurines basically. And then he was bringing tools back to his cell, which he could have been using maybe to, because he was, you know, making these little figurines, but it could have been because he was actually trying to get out. The article describes another case that was presented of flagrant abuse, punishing privileges. So the, the case of Edward Smith, he's reported he's a colored man, so um, most likely a black man. He's described as one-armed and slightly demented in this article. His mental condition was ignored by the warden and prison physician who took advantage of kind of hapless condition of the man to, to heap abuses on him, having been thrown in the hole 10 times in six months. So the hole was a dungeon. It was a room that was about five by eight and completely dark. A small tin cup was the only thing inside. And confinement confinement there would happen for days without food. 
Um, you'd get one drink of water per day in absolute dar- darkness, and you would sleep on the floor, which was steel. So the floor was actually cold metal. It is very, very grim. It's it's shocking, even though you know it's we're talking about like 115 years ago. It's really upsetting, even now as a Washingtonian, to think that that's how people were treated, kind of under the guise of protecting the rest of us um, outside of the prison. Right. And like, was there any oversight? Like who polices the police? Same kind of questions we're asking ourselves today. What about the short man, John Harrigan? Do we know what happened to him in the end? Well, yeah, it was kind of interesting because I got uh, doing this research, I got all their like prisoner files from Walla Walla and John Harrigan's uh, file uh, revealed that his name was actually Charles Hamlin. And in according to letters in there, he came from a good family. There was many letters from his sister who advocated on his behalf. And she was like, he was influenced by this character, Bad Bud Cox. He's really a good guy. Um, and he, because he, uh, was an experienced pipe fitter, so he kind of had like a vocation career. Um, he was seen as a good candidate for parole because he was employable and he didn't have a past criminal record like Bud Cox. So, um, it seems like he got out and joined the pipe fitters union and more or less straightened up and probably went on to live his life. What about... But after he got out of Walla Walla prison. So after all these years of being tortured and, you know, had his spark beaten out of him, did he continue to to live on? Well, he did live on, but he lived a life of crime. He he went right back to it. Um, After his release from Walla Walla in 1913, he immediately got involved in a train robbery in Oregon. And during that robbery, he actually um, was suspected of shooting one of his confederates or his partners in the robbery, who was a guy named Yellow Bill. So he was immediately a wanted man and was on the run again. So there's like just a ton of letters from all these various institutions where he was incarcerated and all the wardens writing back and forth and comparing notes to determine, you know, is this the same guy? He was finally captured in California and sentenced to six years at San Quentin under the name Charles Williams. Um, He actually escaped from San Quentin in 1917, was pretty much immediately captured and returned. But he was released from there a couple years later in 1920. So after that, he's arrested a bunch of times on like, you know, small county jail, city jail type violations in California under the state poison law. And finally, those infractions build up enough to that he's sentenced to Folsom Prison in 1925 under the name Joseph Williams. So we know Bud Cox struggled with substance abuse. Do we know if that's how he met his end? Yeah, honestly, um, I don't have the answer to that yet. His trail kind of ends at Folsom Prison. I have a request to California State Archives. I've been trying to find out if when he was released from there. Uh, The online records don't disclose that. A lot of archives are closed and or understaffed right now. So, But um, I am a little suspicious that his records just don't say anything on them from Folsom. So I'm wondering if he died in there and they, I don't know. If he was released, I I can't find um, a death record for him anywhere either, at least not under any of the names he 
he is known to use as an alias, but it's highly likely he could have just ended up a John Doe in a potter's field. Yeah, he's a really tragic figure and he was obviously a bad dude, it, hence the name. But he, I think he really shows us that crime and punishment is a lot more complicated. It really isn't just good guys and bad guys. And, you know, he suffered uh, tremendous torture that I think would be really difficult to not have extreme PTSD from. And he has also suffered an addiction and tried, it sounded like, to turn his life around he just he's one of those tragic stories of someone who just can never really seem to get the get what they need to to um have a better life i think i think a lot more stories about people who do bad things are like this than aren't right and and you know it just breaks my heart i mean there was no like there was no treatment there was no shik shadle there you know like there wasn't any help for anyone even if they wanted to get off of drugs and honestly like Opiates, holy crow, like that is not something that's easy to get off of by yourself. You're going to get violently ill and you will be very desperate. And when I look at his mug shots and I look at his eyes, I just see so much pain. And he just reminds me so much of so many people that I met, you know, out on the streets and that just were people suffering trauma and trying to alleviate that the however they could. Yeah. And it's sad. Yeah. So it's funny because a lot of times when you do tour, you know, like Maria, when we were like giving tours in the past and people really want to hear the like story of the Old West, like when Fairhaven was like an Old West town and there were shootouts on the streets. You know, I, I went by and saw there's like a plaque over there and it says that this bad thing happened there and that bad thing happened there. And it's kind of like, yeah, like we kind of tend to romanticize the, this era, the Old West era. But there were a lot of people who came out here or who were born out here who had who were really troubled and i don't think it's as simple and as black and white as as we were sort of led to believe through when we watch i wish i could tie this up in like a nice little neat bow just you know when we're thinking about the the history of places like fairhaven which today seems like it's for ants it's you know it's got a seedier a seedier history and past that's complicated and it's fun getting to talk about it even when it's kind of a a bummer subject like poor bud cox which is what i'm going to call him from now on Poor Budcocks. Well, and I think that's a really good place to kind of end this, thinking about how bad Budcocks is, is gone, but not forgotten. He lives on in our memories as, as one of Whatcom's sons, and hopefully we can take some of those compassionate feelings that we have for him and, you know, extend that to members of our community with who are struggling with some of the same issues. Agreed. That's yeah. good. Good. Point. And and also we're going to put his some of his handsomer pictures on Instagram so that you can see him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They are really interesting pictures. So I hope everybody goes and takes a look. All right. Well, with that, we are going to say good night to the beautiful good time girls. Thank you guys so much for being on the show. Thank Thanks you, beautiful Maria. <laughs> <laughs> So, Annika, it seems like this could be a really good TV series, right? I would totally binge it on a Saturday night while enjoying some of my favorite takeout. Yes. That segues us perfectly into our final segment, which is Local Treasures. In this part of the show, we do a roundtable sharing of something we ate, drank, or otherwise consumed recently that fills us with local pride. Annika, you've got a pretty special one this week. 
I do. So this week I partook in a local treasure that is very close to the podcast. So I got a private tour from one of our season two co-hosts, Colby, who is also the owner of the Good Time Girls historical tours. We did a gore and lore tour in Fairhaven. So they have these tours that are supposed to be like dark true crime, ghosty, spooky, murder-related history of Bellingham. And they have one that's Fairhaven and one that's downtown, and we did the Fairhaven tour. And it was so fun. I cannot believe I'd never been on one before. I saw so many people walking by us in Fairhaven that were very interested in what we were doing. They were like, at first they were confused because Colby had some like old-timey creepy garb. She looked like an 1890s Beetlejuice lady it was was good but then they realized she had a mic on and like it was a legitimate tour and they they were like oh wait what are they doing and people seemed really interested so if you see that that is a tour that you can get and they are doing um small private tours that are covid safe social distancing masks all that stuff and it was fantastic so They will be doing their gore and lore tours for the rest of the month. Yes, definitely get on that. They are super educated on Bellingham history, and you will have a great time on one of the Good Time Girls tours. My local treasure this week is the Lion's Tail Cocktail from Jack's. It's a little bitter, a little strong, and great for a cold night. I love the inside of Jack's. It's got a really Mm -hmm. fun, dark atmosphere but their outside porch area is so pleasant as well they've got new super strong heat lamps and we didn't feel like we missed the inside at all so definitely head on down there get a cocktail and they've got a nice hot dog menu so grab one of those too all right so i think that about wraps things up for today so stay tuned for our next week episode where we learn about spider biles Ooh. So remember to like and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can check out our website at cityofthesubdued.com. And you can also support the City of Subdued podcast and support local radio by tuning in to KMRE at 102.3 FM every Thursday night at 10 p.m. to listen to Bad Town. Or you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. And a very special thank you to Marissa, Colby, and Ren from The Good Time Girls for being incredible season two co-hosts and for their incredible research. You can find them at bellinghistory.com as well as Facebook and Instagram. We also want to thank Francisco D'Andrea for our intro and outro music, The Criminals Jazz Band. And lastly, thank you to Maria and myself for doing the editing. With that, I say to you, Bellingham, so long. A little more subdued, Maria. See you next week. Bye.